Do you want to know something interesting about Antenna? <laughs> yeah. Well, we broke up. It was a band that was a failure, I think. You know, we did not accomplish our goals that we set out to achieve. We made a couple records, but that band was basically me and Frida from the Blake Babies, who was my girlfriend until that band started. We broke up, and then her love interest following me, which is a guy named Jake, who was the bass player. So they were the couple. Oh. And and that was okay. okay. That was okay. So we were yes. ready to be broken up. I had to be right, broken right. up by that. Uh, met my wife fairly soon after but each of the three of us went on to get some kind of advanced degree and uh you know we were all college dropouts and once the band was was uh was done we all went back to college so jake is a is a tenured uh professor of cultural studies at northwestern frida is a, a She's a creative writer, writing instructor and administrator at Northwestern. Of course, I went to law school. So yeah, you're a lawyer I think now. That's, wow, look that's, at you guys. That's an <laughs> unusual outcome for a failure of a band. It right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it definitely is. But see, kids, that's something to you know to think about. You could uh, you could live your dreams for a while, do all that wild, and then you know go back to school. Maybe we can all have a second act. That's right. Or thir- yeah, third or a third act. act. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, welcome everyone. This is Batworking.me. Hi, I'm Rob Elba. It's great to have you guys here again. I'm in Nashville still, and it's this is great because I'm actually getting to talk to people who live in Nashville um, in person. Vaxed, we're all vaxed up. We're ready to go. Maskless. It's it's awesome. It's almost like things are normal again. Uh, and I'm welcoming to the show a very special guest, Mr. John Strom. Strom, is that how you pronounce the name? Yeah, you got it right. That's great. Well all done. right. How you doing, John? Doing really well. Thank you. I, I have. I wrote on my sheet: musician, singer, lawyer. <laughs> but you uh, you co-founded uh, Blake Babies. You were like original Blake Babies and antenna and you played did you play drums and and guitar at different times for the lemonheads right my my uh music career is complicated for this reason um i was originally the drummer in the lemonheads that was when it was a punk band in boston i saw that yeah playing boston part uh basement parties stuff like that and we um played together for about a year and a half and i played on part of the album titled Lick, and I played on the album Creator. And then I later joined the band, basically as the touring guitar player. Right, right. And right. around the beginning of 94... And I did that uh, until the beginning of 98. So I did all the touring, but I did very little recording in that phase. I, I had my haircut yesterday by a guy, and I was he was one of my life stories. So at the end of the haircut, he said, so if I go pull up a video and it's the Lemonheads, I'm going to see you, right? And I was uh, like, <laughs> chances are no. Right. You know, Then it sounds like I'm just making it all up. Oh, I know, I know. But especially with Lemonheads, you could see any number of people if, you, if you're looking at live videos. or. <laughs> well, I was in something like eight different lineups of the Lemonheads over the years. Right, Two right, different right. instruments and, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of shows. So I did my time. And, and uh, I, was, I was Evan's buddy back then. We, he, he would bring me along because we liked to hang out. 
Right. We have another uh, guest that's been on a couple of times. Uh, Todd Phillips also played uh, drums like in later Lemonheads uh, iterations. I'm a little an- I-, I love Todd. He's my friend. But I-, <laughs> Go ahead. I will say that I'm a little annoyed. We about can throw the- shade at Todd. Go ahead. No, and it's just not. This is not shade at Todd. I'm a little annoyed about the fact that the Lemonheads up until about 98 when they first broke up. It was maybe like a dozen people in the band. Right. But since Evan started it up again in the mid-2000s, he's probably had another 20 people <laughs> playing in the Lemonheads. <laughs> right, right. Some of whom are my good friends, and, and uh, I think he's diluted the value of having been a Lemonhead. Uh... So he should have just called it Evan Dando from then on. That's my strong opinion as an ex-Lemonhead. Right. Okay. All right. That's, uh, you know, that's Because valid. I was in the band in 1987. Right, right. So that that deserves some kind of props. Yeah. And Blake Babies, I was in every iteration. It was basically Julianne Hatfield, Frida, and me. Right. Uh, a couple of support people on the way. And and then I went to law school, became a music lawyer for the last three years. I've not been practicing law because I'm president of Rounder Records. Of Round, that was uh, that was it. That was the, you're now the president of Rounder Records and living in Nashville. So how long have you been living here in Nashville? I moved here ten years ago. Oh, okay, okay. So you're a Nashvilleian. I, I don't know. I mean, I, there, every, <laughs> everyone here is a transplant. You, you occasionally you meet somebody who's a native. Right, I, I know, right, right. I know some artists who grew up here in the music community, which is amazing. But uh, I'm, I'm a geek about music history. I love living here. I used to work right on the row. We're going to be talking about some of the studios that were right on the block that I used to work in. So. Oh, right, right. Cause some, all right, so let's, uh, let's, let's say the record that you brought that we're going to talk about. What are we talking about? Talking about Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which is the the Birds album from 1968, and uh, it's it's. I'm not going to say it's one of my favorite records because I think it's a flawed record, but it's a record that I love, and it's a, I think it's a record that's fun to talk about because it paved the way for a lot of interesting stuff. Right, and and uh, as I was saying to you earlier, uh, in the course of doing this podcast, this record has been mentioned. You know, over the years, various people mentioned it as uh, touchstones. Um, but I never, I never dug into it until now. And it's for if someone's just a fan of the birds and knows their hits, whatever, they're gonna say, "Wow, this is because uh, this is basically a uh, country record, right? Uh, a country rock." But it was like one of the first country rock records. I don't personally consider it country rock. You I, don't? What do you consider it? I consider it a country record. Okay, I consider record. it a well. I think it's sort of a tribute to country music. That that makes more sense to me. That makes more sense to me, actually, because it just seemed well. All right. So first of all, you're a young guy. You're you're too young to know when this came out in 1968. So when did you discover this record? Actually, there's an interesting story here because my father is a big music fan. He's not a musician. He's an English professor, but he loves music and he has had and has a great album collection. And when I was a little guy, I was interested in music right away. Right. My favorite my favorite artist when I was tiny, when I was two or three years old, was Glenn Campbell, because I used to watch the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. Oh, right, right, which, right. Which, by right. the way, featured John Hartford, who we'll also talk about. Um, so I loved music, and I particularly loved country music, and there was a lot of country music in our in our house. My, my dad is a, he's a guy from Chicago, educated in the East Coast, got his doctorate in Berkeley. He's not a country guy, but he loves country music. And he especially loved this record, because he was a Dylan fan, he was a folky. Oh, wow. Uh he, he loved the idea of of sort of um, elevated country music, and I think this is one that really spoke to him. And and it opened the door for a lot of other stuff he loved, like the, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Bands with the Circle Beyond Broken record, which I think there's a, a direct connection between that record and this one, and the band was another big favorite of his. 
But there's certain records from that era that are so much in my DNA. And I heard this record a lot, and I was fascinated with the cover. I'm wearing the T-shirt from their yes, he is. 50th he came, anniversary uh, <laughs> tour. <laughs> the guest, one of the guests, uh, we have that a lot, guests come wearing the shirt of the record they're talking Extra points for that. But it's this beautiful uh, illustration of a, it's a rodeo poster from, from probably the 30s, I guess. And just just a beautiful, striking image. And, you know, if you're a little kid, you're into cowboys. So I was just fascinated with that. So I spent a lot of time looking at that cover. Right. And listening to the record, uh, not by choice, but because it was playing in the house. Right, right. So when okay. I eventually rediscovered Sweetheart of the Rodeo, it was, so I, I was in the Lemonheads in the late 80s. Uh, Evan... Dando, my, my friend and, and collaborator, fell in love with Graham Parsons. And he said, oh, if you've heard this guy, you got to hear Graham Parsons. It's amazing. So that was around the time he was covering Brass Buttons, which is on the, the Lemonheads' uh, Lovey album. Right, right. Which is one of Graham's solo songs. Uh, so I, I went down that, that rabbit hole, and I got into Graham's solo records, which are fantastic. I think those are actually objectively better records than Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Those are from the early 70s, GP and Grievous Angel. He, he passed away when he was 26, but we're going to talk more about that. Had a very small body of work, but it's an excellent body of work. Right. But of course, then you say, what else is there? Well, then Flying Burrito Brothers, his collaboration with Chris Hillman from The Birds. Right, and right. Then, and then you go back and you find Sweetheart of the Rodeo. As soon as I dropped the needle on that record, you know, and I knew that it was one of my dad's collection, it's like, oh, I know this. It music. was in your DNA. You know, you knew the record. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, hearing Hickory Wynn, hearing Graham's voice, it's like, oh, okay. That's why this <laughs> music. That's why I'm connecting with this music in such a huge way. Right, right, right. And then it just from there, I, I it just snowballed to the point where in, in the mid '90s, I made a record that was very much a you know my own sweetheart of the rodeo called Caledonia, which is kind of me putting a country band together and seeing if I can write country songs. with that thread of music right right right. and particularly with Graham I must have listened to the the CD with GP and Grievous Angel you know several thousand times I just daily for years right I I used to warm up vocals by singing along to it so this is music that's really special to me but that's so the foundation I think is very deep there yeah so your dad that's interesting do you think was your dad just a, a a fan of this type of music country music and discovered that record or was he a birds fan already? He he was just actually he'll he'll probably listen to this. I have to be I have to make sure that I'm careful with my words here. Yes. Um, he was dismissive of the birds. Oh, okay, be- okay. Because he was such a Dylan fan. He loved Dylan, and he's very very you know he's an English professor. He's a he's a medievalist. He's a very literary guy. I think he really connected with Dylan's lyrics, and he felt I think at the time that the birds Dylan covers 
were sort of uh, soft. Yeah, it yeah. For well, the, Dylan for the kids. It was almost like, yeah, they were bringing Dylan uh, to the masses, right? <laughs> and making it radio friendly, making it more uh, radio friendly. Well, they were, and that was something that Dylan was very grateful for. Right. And they were in a different tradition than Dylan because they were folk revivalists. Right, right, they right. Were, exactly. They were young hipsters on, on the West Coast from various parts of the country who were involved in the folk revival. But the part of the folk revival that they were, and I'm talking about... Jim, later Roger McGuinn, and Gene Clark, and um, David Crosby, they were all interested in, in the, the sort of vocal group part of the folk right, revival. Right, right, right. Like, like, so you got Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the tradition of harmony singing. Right. And Gene Clark was a songwriter when they got together, but he was a fledgling songwriter. They didn't really have material. So, you know, that they, they had this brilliant idea of taking a Dylan song, um, in this case, it was Mr. Tambourine Man, and doing one of these vocal arrangements, which is the same thing that Peter, Paul, and Mary did with Blown in the Wind, right? Right, right, right. And they had a big hit with it, but I think that whole part of the folk revival is something that my dad wrote off. He was more, <laughs> inter- he was more interested in the Harry Smith, you know, 78s from the from the, the 30s, you know, right. uh, Carter family, the, the sort of, you know, down and dirty kind of folk revival, and considered Dylan to be in that tradition and everything else to be in a kind of a lightweight, more sort of easy listening tradition. He has strong opinions about this. So I think he was really blown away by Sweetheart of the Rodeo because he probably, you know, he, like me, probably like you, reads record reviews, probably read about it somewhere. It's like, oh, interesting. They made a country record. Let's right, hear this. right, right. And he was getting interested in country. And I think that was a lot of what opened up his interests where then he was buying Hank Williams records and oh okay um, you know he but but he draws certain bright lines like he doesn't he doesn't like bluegrass you know he likes oh, okay. he likes the the you know sort of certain types of of traditional country you would think that would be in his wheelhouse or not are not but that's that's really interesting because he sort of had the opposite effect of most birds fans uh who hated this record a, uh, a lot I don't know most but a lot of birds fans uh just said what the fuck are these guys doing? Like, uh, what happened to my folk rock band? See, now I know I can swear. That's good. Yeah, you can. Um, well, I, I'm going to get a little name drop you here, but um, every Saturday since the, the lockdown started, my brother who lives in San Francisco, my dad who lives in Brooklyn, and I have, have gotten on a Zoom call, like so many families do. But we have a, a, a family friend who we're so close with that that he started regularly joining our calls to the point where it's usually the four of us. And that's a, a legendary music writer named Anthony DeCurtis. Oh. He probably knows work, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's yeah. one of my dad's best friends, and he's oh. somebody that I've grown up with. And he was a big influence in my life because back in the 70s, my father directed his dissertation at Indiana. That's where I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana. And Anthony was the local music writer for the local paper. So he used to get promos and he'd bring them by because he knew I was a music fan. So he actually had a big influence on both my dad's and my musical tastes going forward. I think he got us into Talking Heads and stuff like that back in the 70s. So uh, we were talking about that and I wanted to get their opinions about it because I wanted to kind of get my dad's background on it because he's the one who introduced me to it. And and then when Anthony got on the call, I said, well, what was your experience? And he said, oh, well, I love the birds. I was a huge fan. And then when this record came out, it was like, what the fuck are they doing? You know? (laughs) And he said that eventually he'd kind of come around to appreciate it. But at the time he just felt like he, you know, disappointed by this direction. And to be, to be frank about it, this was a band that was in total crisis at the time. Right. So uh, David Crosby and uh, Michael Clark are 
are gone, right? Well, Michael Clark album. was Michael Clark was the drummer. Um, so the the way the band came together, there was a trio, a folk trio that that came together kind of around the Troubadour scene in L.A. and they were called the Jet Set. And that was Jim McGuinn, David Crosby, and Gene Clark singing as a trio. And then when they actually got an opportunity at Columbia Records and got to go in the studio and, and, and cut a single, they put a band together, and that's when they recruited Michael Clark, the drummer, and uh, Chris Hillman, the non-singing bass player. So, oh, okay. So Hillman was a guy, if he was from San Diego, and he'd been playing bluegrass. He's a bluegrass mandolin player, kind of on the, on the troubadour scene. And it was actually exactly the same story as if you read that great Go-Go's uh, memoir by Kathy Valentine. Oh, yeah, that is great. It is great, but it's the exact same situation where, you know, there was an opportunity and somebody came to him and said, hey, do you play bass? And he's like, oh, yeah, I play bass. Right, right, right. Never never (laughs) held a bass. He had to go out and find a bass and figure out how to play. So he got together with them in a rehearsal studio, and they were all figuring out how to play electric. So that's how the band came together. And then... Uh, Gene Clark, who who was early on the great songwriter and had a really interesting solo career. If you're a power pop guy, like like people assume I am, which I am, yeah, then you love Gene Clark, you know, because you feel a whole lot better. You know, he he wrote some of those uh, great early original songs for the Birds when they were having the big hits with their covers. You know, he right. he was the songwriter, but he had a fear of flying. He was kind of a neurotic guy. He quit the band and. Uh, never rejoined. So when he quit, because the band was about a vocal blend, and that's really the magic of those early records is the, the way that they arranged the vocals, you know, along with the 12-string electric. Right. Um, they needed somebody to replace Gene Clark's voice so Chris Hillman can sing. So he then became the voice. And then Crosby, you know, was, was uh, you know, sort of erratic and uh, got kicked out of the band about a year before um, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. But see, if you... Crosby was really um, a, a magical singer. He still is. You know, if you listen to Crosby, if you listen to Crosby, still to Nash, you know, his is kind of the in, invisible middle voice. Yep. You know, he, Stills' I, voice It's amazing like someone with, with that face, <laughs> that, that could come out of his face. Well, he just, he's just one of these singers, you know. It's like, uh, you know, like they cover the Lubin Brothers, similar, similar thing with them. It's like he has, a, or, or Art Garfunkel, I was actually reading about, um, that song Southern Cross last night, uh, which was an 80s hit for for, for uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And they actually replaced Crosby with Art Garfunkel because oh. he wasn't present. Uh, and it's like he does something really similar. You know, he has right, this right. magical harmony singing ability. So it had to have been a crushing loss when he was gone. Right. Because they didn't have that magical sound, which then, you know, very soon after Crosby, Stills, and Nash had. Right. Which was the, the glue was, was Crosby's voice. And he was sort of referencing... The Four Freshmen, which is very similar to, to how Brian Wilson came up. So you can look at that as a real, you know, there, there's a real connection between what the Beach Boys were doing, what the Birds were doing, in the sense that it was about harmony singing. Right, right, right. Yeah. About group harmonies. All their songs had three voices that were very carefully arranged. Yeah. And, and, and all of that is still there on this record. There's great harmonies on this record. But then you just have all this other, all these country music trappings around it. And very authentically played all right so we you alluded to it that uh, a lot of the original stuff was recorded right here right in uh, music row in uh, nashville yes yeah and they used session musicians to like fill things up yeah so i think that that um okay so there, there's a little bit of backstory i think that's necessary 
um, and have to bring in a few key characters. Let's, so let's bring them in. Their their album that they made just prior to uh, Sweet Out of the Rodeo was called the Notorious Bird Brothers, and that was the album where David Crosby left the band. So he's he's on the record, but very little. So he quit the band or was fired. However, that went down in the making of that record. So when that record was done and it was actually a successful record, um, it was at that point it had been, it went from being a trio Crosby, McGuinn and Clark to being just McGuinn. And then he'd recruited Hillman who'd kind of elevated. So it was like basically the birds at that point were a duo. Michael Clark, the drummer, uh, left the band around that time was replaced by a guy named Kevin Kelly, who was Hillman's cousin, who didn't last long. He lasted just for the album cycle. So they had to find somebody to basically replace Crosby. Right. Which is a tall order, because are you going to find that voice? Well, they sort of replaced him with, I mean, he's not an exact replacement, but that's when Graham Parsons comes into the picture. Right. Young, like a young, he, he was really young, right? Was he like uh, a 20? Well, everyone was fairly young at that point. I don't know exactly how he, but they were mid-20s. Right. And, uh, and Graham was 21 and he, you know, he's a rich kid. He's from uh, originally from Waycross, Georgia, grew up in Winter Park, Florida. Very, very wealthy, but sort of a tragic history. His father committed suicide when he was an adolescent, uh, came up uh, prep school, went to Harvard. He was studying, uh, he was studying divinity at Harvard and he dropped out, oh, wow. formed this band called the International Submarine Band on the, on the Boston scene. They, yes, they yes. moved out to L.A. They signed with... Um, Lee Hazelwood, you know, who's a, a you know, high profile LA guy. He's mostly known for his collaborations with Nancy Sinatra. And he had a, a, a record label called Lee Hazelwood Industries, LHI, that factors into the story. And he had signed the International Submarine Band and they made an album called Safe at Home. And that was really, if you want to go back and say, what well, was the first real country rock record, there's a pretty good argument to be made that it was that one. I've seen that. Yeah, I read, I read in reading about this. I've seen it. And clearly the, the Birds guys were lit up like this. Because, you know, originally Graham tried out and was, was hired as a piano player. Graham is not a particularly good piano player. <laughs> right. If you listen closely to Hickory Wind uh, on, on Sweetheart, you can hear some of Graham's piano playing, and it's not great. There's some clams in there. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, he's, he's kind of got this... Um, Floyd Kramer thing that he does, but it's always a little sloppy. I mean, he's an incredible musician, but right. that's not his strong suit as being a piano player compared to Earl Poole Ball, who's the guy who plays on this record, is amazing. Yeah, well, yeah, all the guys they got playing on this record are amazing. You could you could tell these are top-notch players. No question. So Graham came in as the piano player, sort of took over, and uh, McGuinn had been chasing this concept for their next record that he was going to do the entire history of 20th, 20th century music. <laughs> right, I saw that. <laughs> from, from like, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, banjo music up to, to, you know, electronic experimentation. He wanted it to be a double album, kind of his opus. Yeah. And, of course, Graham didn't want any part of that. No, that sounds like something that would be even more... Of a flop than this record ended up. <laughs> so, so what ended up happening, I think, is that Graham really came in, and 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 I think they were probably grateful for it because they were flailing a little bit. And, yeah. And uh, like, okay, you know, they they uh, he he very quickly was elevated to be not only a, I mean, he wasn't literally a member of the band because he was still you know a guy on, you know was getting on salary. He didn't he didn't have equity in the band. Right. But they gave him a big seat at the table creatively. 
So when they went into the studio and when they went into Columbia Studio A in Nashville in early 1968, he sang uh, at least half the songs. And then there was a, a sort of correction when they went into post-production because Graham had, had pulled some shit. Basically, when they went on tour between the time they recorded the record and it came out, uh, Graham refused to go on, on, a, on a South Africa tour. You know, quit the day before the tour. He was in London. He was he'd met Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, and he wanted to hang out with the Stones, <laughs> so he quit the band. So then, when when they got done with that tour and they were doing post production, a lot of his vocals were removed and replaced. I saw that. I saw that. That's like crazy. That's so crazy to me. Well, if you think about it, so we we can talk about this in a more granular way. But my opinion is that Sweetheart of the Rodeo could have been a great record, and it is a very good record. But there's, you know, they they made some some creative choices in post production that I think hurt the record, and uh, I, I think all of that was was a, a, an effort. You know, I don't know if it's it could have been because they were pissed off at Graham because he left the band. It yeah. could have been because Lee Hazelwood was covering and threatening legal action because he had Graham under contract. Right, right, right. Or it could have been because you know, McGuinn and Hillman, who were the the you know literally the the, the birds at that point. Um, had a uh, had a kind of a panic, and they're like, "What are we doing? We got to make this more birdsy, you know. We got to have right, 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 right. <laughs> have have this sound more like the birds, or else we just got a Graham Parsons album. But see, since I'm such a Graham Parsons fan, I mean, I'm a fan of the birds and of Graham Parsons. But Graham has one of those voices that I think is really special. I think it really carries a whole lot of uh, sort of emotional weight, you know, the way that he can sing a song. Yeah. And so the result was, you know, they kind of compromised a little bit. I think they harmed some of the songs. Oh, the other really key player I should talk about here is Clarence White. So Clarence White is a guitar player. He was a bluegrass picker from the West Coast, had a band called the Kentucky Colonels. And he is widely considered to be one of the most influential bluegrass flat pickers of all time. Oh, okay. So if you're familiar with Tony Rice, you know, who's considered, I think, by many people to be the, the, the greatest flat picker, you know, of modern times, you know, he was directly influenced by Clarence White. He was he was like a bluegrass lead guitarist. Right. All right. So that crazy, like in the uh, Christian life and everything, that picking that crazy guitar stuff you hear is him. So, yeah, he had a little transition. He, he left the Kentucky Colonels. He bought a Telecaster. He was inspired by James Burton, you know, who was... Ricky Nelson's guitar player later played with Elvis, who was the lead player on all those Graham Parsons solo records. Incredible guitarist. And, uh, you know, he played, he learned how to play the Telecaster. He actually invented something along with Gene Parsons, who was a guy who later joined the Birds, called the B-Bender. Oh, okay. Do you know about the B-Bender? It's it's a a device you put on a Telecaster to make it sound more like a pedal steel, where you can kind of like move it with your hip and it bends a whole step. Yeah. <laughs> so he he is an incredibly uh, skilled and influential acoustic and electric guitar player. And the incredible lead guitar playing you hear throughout this record is all him. Is him. And he had been in the Birds. Um, well, no, he hadn't been in the Birds. He was a session player on the Birds uh, going back two albums. So uh, like the song Time Between, which was a, a Chris Hillman song, um, if you listen to that one, you can clearly hear Clarence White. And he became a major member of the Birds for their next phase, the kind of Ballad of Easy Rider phase into the 70s. Tragically died. He was hit by a car in 1973, uh, loading loading his car after a gig. Ooh. 
So he's incredibly important. So he, there's certain people that came with the deal, like uh, uh, J.D. Manis is the steel player from the West Coast that they brought with them. Right, right, right. Clarence White, a uh, uh, lead guitar player from L.A. they brought with them. And then that guy, uh, Lloyd Green, also uh, another pedal steel player. Yeah, so they had a couple session people that came in and for the sessions of, of Sweetheart. Lloyd Green was a, the other steel player. You're, now, you're a guitar. I just want to ask you real quick. I, I always ask guitar players this. Have you you've seen people play pedal steel? Have you ever tried playing that? Because it looks when I see that, it, I don't understand what's going. I don't understand how it works with the with the knees and with that. It looks very uh, intricate and impossible. To play. I've monkeyed around with the steel before. Yeah, it's a real discipline. It is right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I used to play with this this guy uh, in Dennis Scoville in, in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. I had a, I had a band. Back in the 90s called Hello Strangers, who was the one that made that record that I told you about, Caledonia. And Dennis was the, the steel player I played with. And, uh, you know, sweet guy, sadly passed away uh, maybe a decade ago or something like that. But um, he used to say, steel's a lonely instrument. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. Like, he's like, you can't talk about it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I know. There's a guy. There's actually a guy. Bob Los in uh, South Florida that has a studio and he's a pedal steel player and he plays with a lot of people. But yeah, he's kind of like this loner guy and, uh, and he just, but he's, I mean, you watch him play that and, and, and it's like a scientist, you know, on this thing. I've, I've sat down on it for, you know, I've probably spent a total of five or six hours of my life sitting at a steel trying to figure stuff right. out <laughs> and I can figure out how to play little licks, you know, I can figure right. out with, but they, they're, they're, they're tuned weird, you know, they're tuned because it's usually, you know, like for Western swing and sort of more jazzy. Uh, you know, uh, harmonic, um, uh, uh, you know, patterns. So um, it's not just tuned to an open G like a lap steel would be or something. Right, like right, right, right. You can't just, you know, run the slide up and down the neck and make sense. You've got to sit down and figure it out. So there's a, there's a big learning curve and, and people that learn how to do it, you know, they have to kind of rewire their brain, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, that's what it seems. All right, so let's let's get into this record already. Let's start yep, listening to it. Yep. Please, let's get the first song. Uh, of course, they're the birds, so what do they start with? They have to open with a, a Dylan, Dylan song, Dylan right? Dylan song, yeah. Yeah, of course, well, because why would you not? Let's listen to You Ain't Going Nowhere. so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, railings froze, get your mind off winter time, you ain't going nowhere. this all i picture is 1968 some birds fan like getting this record and already confused by, by what it looks like the cover of it and then putting the needle down and just like what i i love this track so much you know one thing that i know for sure because i can play and sing every song in this record you know just hand me a guitar i'll perform it for you right but um this is one that I can just pull out. If I'm sitting around and somebody hands me a guitar and it's a bunch of music people, I know they're going to know the, the, the harmonies and the chorus. You know, right, it's going right. to work. 
I love that that kickoff by uh, Lloyd Green. You know, it's just such a it's such a statement of purpose. It's so hooky. But yes. to me, this sounds like a hit single. It wasn't, you know. But, right, right, right. But right. you know the the you know the percussion and the chorus, the you know the vocal harmony. And the, yeah, those harmonies. You still got those those birds <laughs> harmonies, which are just like beautiful, stunning. Yeah, ev- everything about this song just just is is beauty to my ears. And this is this is the McGuinn lead vocal, right? And you know, I mean, he's not he's not singing this with an approach that's that different from from lead vocals that he would have sung on earlier tracks. So um, I think that my my guess is the way that they sequence this record because it's bookended by Dylan songs. Yes, yes. And I think that that it was probably for familiarity. It's because they didn't want it to be too 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 much of a blow. It's kind of like you know how how Revolver by the Beatles ends with Tomorrow Never Knows. Like imagine if that was the first track. Oh, right, right, right. You know. It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like too much too soon. It's like what the fuck am I listening to? Right. So so I think that, you know, the hookiest thing in the song to me is is the uh, is the steel, you know, is the kickoff. You yeah. know, that's the thing that I think really defines it. And Lloyd Green, I think, is really and and JD Manis, but I think really Lloyd is is MVP on this record. It's like what he brings to it is amazing. And at the show that they did at the Ryman, the the one where I I got the shirt. Um, oh, and I mentioned to you, and I should mention to 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 the uh, listeners as well that I have a relationship with Chris Hillman because he signed a rounder, which is the label I run. He's an artist on our label. That's so, right. That's right. Um, <clears throat> which is incredibly cool and fun. To, to get to have that kind of relationship with yeah, one of my yeah. heroes. But, it must be. You know, so we got the red carpet at that show. But there's there's a, a young fella. He's probably not too young. He's probably 40, but he's young to me. Um, I hope he's not that. I hope he's not way younger than that because I feel like a jerk. <laughs> yeah, that'd be bad. <laughs> North of 30, guy named uh, Chris Scruggs, who's a local musician who plays in Marty Stewart's uh, Fabulous Superlatives. And he's a great sort of uh, what would you call a utility guy. Can can play everything. Right. Plays bass, but then he can pick up a, a guitar, and he's oh, amazing. And he can play steel. And he I actually hate people like that, by the way. Well, <laughs> that can do everything. He's an incredibly nice guy, and, oh, okay. and his name Scruggs is not a coincidence. He is Earl Scruggs' grandson. Oh, nice. Um, and he really learned both the the Lloyd Green and the J.D. Manis parts for the show, and just nailed them. Oh, wow! Nice. So. You know, and and they play very differently, so that was an incredible feature of the show is having the steel, having somebody actually up there executing it. Right, so, right, right. Anyway, so, right. so speaking of Chris Hillman, now now we get a uh, Chris Hillman, and I I got let's listen to it a little bit, and then I I have something that came up in my head about this about his the way he sings in this song. But okay. let's listen to a little bit. Of I am a pilgrim. This wearsome land I've got a home in That yonder city Good Lord And it's not Not made by
John, I gotta ask you something. You may think I'm crazy or I'm full of shit. Many people think I'm full of shit. Um, <laughs> Doug Yule, I was reminded of like Doug Yule and Loaded, uh, Loaded era Velvet Underground in the way he's singing. And I know Loaded came out two years after this, but I'm wondering. I, I hear that in his voice and the way he's singing it, his delivery. I hear a little bit of that. So, so in in your theory, who influenced who? I mean, he wouldn't. Oh, have, no, he no. wouldn't I'm, have heard I'm, Doug Yule. You think Doug I'm Yule might Doug be Yule, You know, heard this yeah. and listened to it, and was somewhat because there is that a uh, country tinged element in Loaded, and I'm I'm imagining that he was a fan of this. Well, look, I mean, Velvets is something I could talk about in the same way. This is this <laughs> right. is a, a lifelong obsession of mine. And, okay. and I'm absolutely obsessed with, with uh, you know, Los Angeles of the 60s. There's so many different eras of Los Angeles music. Same way for New York music. But I think that, that the direction the Velvets went around Loaded, uh, I think Lou really gave Doug Ewell a lot of license. And, yes. and he, he had a lot to do with, with the direction that... They moved in, and and right. you know, I I grew up listening to those records and not being sure who was singing. You know, oh yeah, right, same, records. same for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, well, you know, Lucy is that Lou? It's right, really, and really that pretty voice really sound sometimes. Like Lou. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I put that together, I realized, that, you know, and it's interesting that he hasn't really distinguished himself since then because I think he's very good. But I think it's almost certain that Doug Ewell would have heard this, right? And, and yeah. uh, you know, there just wasn't a lot of, uh, you know. There wasn't the kind of volume of music you have now. I know, you know, I know. yeah. And and uh, you know, would somebody like that have heard the birds? Would Lou have heard the birds? Of course, of course, right, exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's very likely. Now, the thing that's interesting here, I think, is you bring in another very very uh, heavyweight uh, contributor to this album, which is John Hartford. He's playing fiddle here, but yeah. but the fiddle is so key to the authenticity. Yes, yes. And there's, I think, that maybe somebody who's listening can clear this up, but. I always understood that was McGuinn on banjo. Now, now in uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, which we'll listen to later, that's John Hartford playing practically everything. Oh, right. But when uh, McGuinn was talking about this on stage at, at the uh, the Ryman show that I saw, he was talking about John Hartford, and he said, yeah, you know, I was trying to play banjo in this, and Hartford said, you know, give me that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might want to let me do this, you know. Right, right, right. And it's a little sloppy, but it's a great part, but... You know, the feel that John Hartford plays with. Now, John Hartford is a guy from St. Louis. He was actually an artist on Rounder, too. He was on Rounder and oh, Flying nice. Fish. But he had, a, he had a huge moment right around this time because he wrote the song Gentle on My Mind, which was a huge hit for Glenn Campbell. And, right. and John Hartford released that in 67. And then Glenn Campbell re-released it. He covered it in 67 and had a big hit with it in 68. So right around the time John Hartford would have been playing on this, he would have been, you know, kind of becoming a household name because of that song. Right, right, right. But he's also a, a really, really legit bluegrass musician, and he brings that feel to it. And and right. Hillman, we know, really cut his teeth in music playing that kind of, you know, with that sound. He's a bluegrass mandolin player, so it's very natural for him. Okay. okay. But I think this would have been the moment that's kind of jarring for the Birds fan because this really sounds like country music. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, does. there's no kind of like... Fiddle, yeah, with let's, that let's, fiddle going through it and the banjo, yeah. This is only country rock to the extent that, you know, I guess McGuinn's playing rhythm guitar. I mean, there's no rock to this. It's That's a, it's true. A, it's, That's a, it's true. a country track. So, uh, but I, but I, I love it. Also, this is a song that was, uh, it's a traditional song, a spiritual that was made famous by Merle Travis, 
who's you know one of the legendary uh, guitarists and and you know fathers of, of modern country music. He played this song on that Nitty Gritty Dirt Band "Will the Circle Be Unbroken" album and did a very sort of a this. Do you, do you know what Travis Picking is? You're a guitar player, so he has a a sort I of. I do not. No. It's it's. If you're a finger picker, there's sort of a standard pattern called Travis picking, which is something that Merle Travis really invented. Oh, okay, okay. And so there's a version of this on Will the Circle Be Unbroken that's Merle Travis really doing what he does, and it's much jazzier. Oh, okay. But, um, you know, this is them. Like, this is not a Merle Travis version because he's just strumming the acoustic guitar. He's right, not, right, he's not right, doing right. that fancy picking, but the banjo's kind of carrying that. But I, I love this track. Uh, all right, and now we get one. Interest- this is interesting because this, to me, like... Uh, uh, I like that you said you thought that this was more of a tribute to country record because this this song, the way McGuinn's singing it, obviously a little uh, tongue-in-cheek, his delivery of it, right? I, I'm going to talk about that after we listen to it because I, I, I have very, very strong opinions okay, about, about right, this song. Okay, all right, let's listen to it a little song. bit of The Christian Life. My buddies tell me that I should have waited They say I'm missing a whole world of fun But I still love them and I sing with pride I like the Christian life I won't lose a friend for what is a friend who'd want you to fall? Others find pleasure in things I despise. I like the Christian. Okay, so this is one of the ones that Graham Parsons sang originally, right? And Roger McGuinn sang over it. We actually hear Graham's voice, I think, for the first time on the record in the chorus. If, oh, you, okay. if you listen closely, they bring his vocal back in to thicken it up. Ah. But this is one that I want you to A-B with the, uh, the version from, from, the, from the Legacy Edition. My buddies tell me that I should have waited. They say I'm missing a whole world of fun. But I still love them and I sing with pride. I like the Christian life. Okay, with, okay. Because here's what I think happened. So first of all, some some things about this that I think are really cool. The uh, the back and forth between J.D. Manis and Pedal Steel and Clarence White is incredible. This yes. is some of Clarence's best playing. It's like. You know, just beautiful, beautiful accompaniment on the guitar. Right. This is a Leuven Brothers song. It's from that album called Satan is Real. I know, which people know. You you know this record. I know people because it's yeah. been an internet meme and stuff because it's so fucking a bonkers record cover. It's bonkers, <laughs> but it's a beautiful record. And, you know, so the the, the vocal harmony part um, is is the uh, is the Ira Leuven part. And, um, you know, they're really being true to that. But if you listen to the Leuven Brothers, it's very bare bones. It has electric guitar, but it's basically just a, right, right, a, right. a vocal. But I think what happened here is that if you listen to this back to back with Graham's version, Graham's version is very convincing. 
It's very sincere, you oh, know. Okay. I mean, he's not a Christian, obviously. He's a complete hedonist, you know. Right. But but he's actually a Southern guy. Yes, yes. And, so this know, again, this is kind of like in, in his DNA in a way. He's got this music coursing through his veins. So right. even though it isn't sincere in the sense that he's not saying, you know, he's not literally saying, you know, I'm, my buddies shunned me since I turned to Jesus. You right, know? right, right. He's he's at least singing it very sincerely. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I've always heard this as insincere when I listen to Miguin's vocal, but I know what he's doing here, and you'll, you'll agree with me once you listen to this back-to-back with the, the one that Graham sings, is he's imitating Graham. Oh, okay, okay. He's trying to do his vocal like Graham. All right. And he's failing, you know? So, <laughs> he's failing, and so, it's offensive. Like, Barry, thank God Barry's not on the show anymore, because Barry would hate when people who don't really have Southern accents try to yeah. sing in a Southern accent. My wife hates that, too, and she's from, from Alabama. Right, so, right, so right. So it, it drives her crazy. She does not have a southern accent, by the way. She just has a <laughs> just has an ear for phony southern accent. Exactly. Right. Right. But yeah, McGuinn is not southern, and and here he's just trying to you know give himself the starring role. This is obviously something Graham brought in, and something that Graham sang very well. And this is just the first instance of him saying like, you know what, you know, uh, I'm just gonna ham it up a little. But and, he, uh, he does. But the the joke is on him, Roger McGuinn, because eventually he became a a Christian, a real a born again Christian, right? <laughs> As, the, as did Hillman. They're both very devout. Right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> the joke's on him. But I I love, love, love. I mean, uh, there, there are other examples of uh, a Graham or Graham and Emmy Lou covering Lubin Brothers songs. Oh, okay, okay. Later in his career, it, he he's had several great Lubin Brothers covers. Right, right. But, you know, this is one that Graham just nails. Yeah. So, so if I'm sequencing this record, I'm taking that, you know, this version straight out of the sequence and I'm putting Graham's version. You <laughs> know, there's course, one that's right. called the the, you know, original master that with Graham's vocal in it. That's so much better. Is and it? that's that would be one of my favorite tracks in the record. The one with McGuinn just sounds phony to me. It well, yeah, yeah, it does. Um all right, so now we get a great this is a this is a great song. Uh so originally uh, like a Stax soul, more like a soul song, right? This is William Bell. Yeah, William Bell had a had a, a, a you know, six or seven years ago kind of had a comeback and I saw him perform at, at uh, a venue here in Nashville. And oh, nice. He's still a nice. great voice, you know? Yes. It's a, it's a soul song. Now there's, there's something I should talk about leading into this, which is that Graham, he didn't quite have this concept together yet, but he, he introduced this concept about a year later when, when he and Hillman launches the, uh, the flying burrito brothers of cosmic American music. Yes. I, I so saw that his, his, uh, his whole thing, which is kind of like the, the roots of what we now call Americana, was bringing together all these genres in a way that became a singular American music. And that definitely included uh, soul music, R&B music. Right, right. Because, he, you know, on that record, he covers Dark End of the Street. He covers Do Right Woman. You know, he, he's um, doing these, you know, these Dan Penn songs. He's he's doing sort of his cosmic American versions of of these, these, uh, right. you know, stacks and, yeah. and other, you know, soul songs. So this is one where, again, you know, this should be Graham's vocal. I, th- uh, I right, like what right. they do with this better because they kind of birdsify it. Right. Yes. Right. And I think they it's do. actually a really nice track. So this been one really one of my works. Tracks. I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. I would be kind of on the fence as to whether or not to drop in Graham's vocal instead of this because I like them both. But I think this is like really the first recorded example of, of that cosmic American music concept right. as it applies to, to, uh, to, to R&B. All right, so let's listen to a little bit of You Don't Miss Your Water. I 
example of a great song just being a great song. And and the lyrics actually work really great in a, a country, as a country song, you know? Uh, even, though, even though originally it was more like a soul song. Uh, in the beginning, you really loved me, but I was blind, I could not see. But when you left me, oh, how I cried. You don't miss your water till your well one's dry. I mean, that sounds like a country song. You well, know? for me, as a music fan, I love a lot of music, you know? I mean, I, I come from punk rock. That's right. That's my own... That's when I started playing music, was playing hardcore punk. So... You know, that's that's a, a foundation that's pretty far from from what they're doing here. But when I'm deciding what record I'm going to put on when I'm cooking dinner, it's probably going to be either a soul or country record from the '60s, right, 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 <clears throat> or '70s. Yeah. And the 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 song I'm I'm a I'm a it's fan not going to be Black Flag. Well, it might be. <laughs> It, it could be <laughs> depends on my mood. Right. But I, I'm a fan of great songs and great singing. You yeah. know, I I, I love you know, a great voice, uh, communicating a great song, you know, that's what makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. That's really the, the thing that, that I, I love most, Same. you know, other than the, you know, the, the, you know, people who, who, who are close to me. So, um, the, the, I think it's a, I think it's a great version. The real superstar in this one for me is Earl P. Ball, the piano player. He does oh, that, right, that, right. that amazing turnaround. Um, but I, I think they do a real nice job with this arrangement. I like when the high harmonies come in. It's it's one that I've always liked. I do think it's worth having a listen to what Graham does in the vocal because I think it, it, this is another one he almost certainly brought in and originally sang where the vocals were, re, were reproduced. This is just more in, in McGuinn's wheelhouse. And what they're doing here, which I think is a really nice effect, is they're singing the verses in unison. This is Hillman and McGuinn singing in unison. Oh, okay. okay. So, and, and it's an effect that you, you know, some, some certain singers in... in you know, more recent times, we'll sing, you know, we'll double And you have to be a good in-tune singer. Now, here's one thing that's interesting. It's like, these guys are great singers and that they can totally nail the pitch. Graham never quite nails the pitch. That's how you can recognize his vocals so well. It's oh, like, right, right. It's like he's a little bit, uh, he's, he's always just, you know, like a, a tiny bit off, you know? A and, lot of my favorite singers, though, that's their, that's the thing. That's the jam, though, you know? Well, you can you can be a little off if you're a lead singer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. you can't be. Have you ever um, taken a dive into the uh, Beach Boys vocal stacks, like the Pet Sound stacks? Oh, oh, where they have the uh, just the vocals. Just yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard some. I mean, when you hear people who are harmony singers like that, who are able to just you know, when you put when you listen to them in isolation, and they're perfectly it on the note, otherworldly. It's like it doesn't even sound human. <laughs> Right, and these are those kinds of singers. Crosby is definitely that kind of singer, but these right. guys are too. But Graham is not that kind of right, singer. Right, right. He's not. That's why you can pick his his voice out of the lineup. <laughs> you know, that's how I know that he's singing on the choruses of the Christian Life is because he comes in and it's just like, oh, oh okay, oh, there's Graham. You know, he's <laughs> hey, got a Graham. distinctive tone, and and it's just you know, it's just a tiny bit off. Sometimes it's way off. It probably right. depends on how drunk he is. Well, now we got a uh, once uh, that they let him uh, that they let his vocal stay on this one. This is a, this uh, is the first yeah the first. Uh, Graham lead vocal, a, loud and proud. A brokenhearted al- alcoholic song by Luke <laughs> McDaniel. You're, You're still, still on my mind. mind. The jukebox is playing a honky tonk song. One more I keep saying, and then I'll go home. What good will it do me? I know what I'll find An empty bottle of broken heart 
musicians those hired hands i mean those guys the the piano and the um steel the uh, pedal steel on this one is just like top notch yeah and these are both west coast guys these are not um nashville session guys right these right, are guys right. that actually came out with them because jd manis is somebody that they actually tried to hire to be a permanent member of the band the, oh, the, the okay. steel player but yeah it's this you're in the honky-tonk here and the music that i think inspired these guys most in um getting into country, I think, was the kind of hard country sound of, of people like George Jones, who, who did the most well-known version of this, and certainly Merle Haggard, you know? Right. That was what was going on, where they're just like, oh, that's amazing stuff. And, you know, when you listen to those 60s sides, they are incredible. And, yeah, this is just, they're just honky-tonking here. Right, you know? right, right. This is like, this is a great-feeling song. Right. This episode of That Record Got Me High podcast is brought to you by our patrons at Patreon. What is Patreon? Well, I've only been telling you about it for the past three years, but Patreon is a platform that allows you to support artists and creators that you love. How do you become a patron? Well, I also mentioned this too. You go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH or just go to patreon.com and search for That Record Got Me High podcast and become a patron of the show. It's fun. It's, well, I don't know how fun it is, really, but uh, it really helps out, and we appreciate you, and we have special patron-curated episodes, and we send out newsletters, and uh, it is fun. I'm just going to go on record as saying it's kind of fun. Go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH and become a patron today. All right, now we get a, a, not a Dylan song, but a Woody Guthrie song. That's right. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of Pretty Boy Floyd. Well, gather around me children, a story I will tell About Pretty Boy Floyd, the outlaw, Oklahoma knew him well Saturday afternoon, his wife beside him in a wagon as into town they rode. Then along come a deputy sheriff in a manner rather rude, using vulgar words of language, his wife she overheard. Then pretty boy grabbed the log chain, deputy grabbed There's a lot to say about this one. So, um, first of all, this is this is McGuinn doing something that's very much in his comfort zone. Right. So he'd been playing this song since before the birds because he was a folky and of course he was in a Woody Guthrie. Right, right. So this is just in his repertoire. 
this is a song where he could get up on stage and play the banjo and it would be perfectly comfortable to him. Unlike the Christian life, which right, is, right, which is not familiar <laughs> to him. But basically, what they're doing here is they're handing this to John Hartford to do basically everything. So it's it's a it's really a bluegrass track, right? So if you're listening to bluegrass, uh, the the equivalent of the drum set in the bluegrass is the bass and the mandolin, because the mandolin is doing something we call the chop. Okay, it's the two and four. That's the snare, and then right. you have Junior Husky and the bass. So that's the rhythm section, right? Right, right. And and then John Hartford's doing everything else. He's doing the Skrug style banjo. He's doing the, you know, the, the fiddle, basic the fiddle. rhythm guitar. And then he's doing the the you know the traditional fiddle. Yeah. But the other thing, the thing I think that's notable here is that this is this is an example of Chris Hillman really being in his bluegrass comfort zone. Because for one thing, he knows exactly what he's supposed to do with the mandolin, which is be the snare drum. Right. And he does right. that through ninety percent of the song. But then when he actually takes a solo at the end. It's really good. Yeah. You know, so you had John Hartford taking these amazing solos. I mean, they're perfect. But then when it comes around to Hillman, and I imagine that he probably was aware of, you know, how he had to kind of step up to the plate when he's playing with somebody who's as, as uh, you know, as proficient as, as right, Hartford. Right, right, But I think it really works. And, uh, you know, I like everything about it. And, and I think that, that this is probably Hillman's, or not, sorry, McGuinn's best vocal on the whole record. Oh, Okay. And it's just, it, it's very cool to me to think of you as a little kid getting to listen to this. I feel like if my parents, if my dad listened to this, I, w- I would like this as a kid. I would really enjoy this, but I never got it because my parents listened to horrible music when I was little. <laughs> well, here, here's the weird thing about that. You know, like I didn't, I didn't have any kind of uh, opinion about the music I heard around the house at all. The music that lit me up was the Beatles and you know later like hard rock and right. and you know when i discovered you know heavy metal and hardcore that was my music right but then later when i started hearing stuff like leonard cohen and joni mitchell and neil young and 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 this stuff and the band it's like oh you know that music just spoke to me so yep. deeply because i think it's just the music that i i sort of you know formed those synapses in my brain to what music's supposed to sound like Right, you know? right, right, right. And I've, I've, you know, now it's like my my foundation for music is very similar to my old man's. You know, that's that's awesome. Look at that, the musical circle of life. Uh, all right, so now we get uh, Grant Parsons again. I, I want you, I want vocal. you to listen for something here. When 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 the when his vocal starts, it's like somebody has a coughing fit during his first line. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And also listen for the Graham's uh, piano playing because it it's you know I, I described it as sloppy and I think this is a good example. Uh-huh. It's it's right. soulful but sloppy. You all know, right. compared to Earl P. Ball, who's so precise. Right. All right. A little bit of Hickory Wind. <laughs> In South Carolina There are many tall pines I remember the oak tree That we used to climb But now 
I think that high harmony is. is uh, I was going to ask you that. Who is that? Because I was looking in the credits to see if there was a female backup singer. I think it's McGuinn singing falsetto. Ah. So I think you've got you've got Hillman in there and McGuinn singing along with him. I think yeah. I think he's singing a falsetto. That's funny. You, That's you what knew he, exactly what I was going to ask. Well, I thought about emailing Hillman to ask him some questions because I, I recently read his memoir, which is great, but he doesn't tell you much. Right. You know, you get some of the sense of, you know, how the band came together and and its evolution and a lot about the Burrito Brothers. But um, he doesn't get into that kind of granular detail. But when they played this song on stage, uh, McGuinn sang that part. Oh, OK. And and I think that's so this is for me, this is one of the best Grand Parsons songs that he never quite got a perfect uh, recording of because he recorded this song again on his uh, final solo album, uh, Grievous Angel. But it's a strange recording because he he does this and he does Cash in the Barrelhead, which is another Leuven Brothers song, as if it were a live recording. But it's actually a bogus live recording where they kind of uh, they they piped in an audience. I'm not oh, sure why okay. they did that, but it's <laughs> it's a beautiful vocal with him singing this with Emmy Lou, where she's doing that part, which is perfect. Right. right and if right. he if he would have known Emmy Lou and called her in for this one, it would have been great. But I think that this is a good version. Um, I just think he never quite nailed it, but it's it's definitely his. Okay. You know, for me, it might be his, his signature song. Now, do you? Let me ask you: Do you blame this record for the Eagles? Well, I love the Eagles. So I, I, you, <laughs> I was wondering. I was going. A lot of people, so many people, shit on the Eagles, and I have no problem with the Eagles. Actually, I just, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of nitpicky problems you can find with them. But I thought one of the first records I ever bought with my own money was Hotel California. Well, so there, there's a direct line. Uh, you can draw a straight line between this and the Eagles because uh, Bernie Ledden was the sort of utility guy who was replaced by Joe Walsh in the Eagles. Right. Played on the first few albums. He was a member of the post-Graham Parsons Flying Burrito Brothers with Chris Hillman. Oh, okay, okay. So he was on that scene. So did those guys know this music? Oh, hell yes, oh, they please. did. Oh, please. Yes, yeah. they did. <laughs> I mean, they were they were kind of opportunists and, you know, showed up and got involved in, this, in a scene that was already you know, really coming together in the, in the late sixties. But, um, yeah. And I've talked to, you know, uh, JD Souther, who's, who's, uh, was one of my law clients. I get to know him pretty well. Who's, who's a, wrote a lot of those Eagles hits. Ah. You know, he wrote new kid in town and he wrote, uh, um, best of my love, just a bunch of those songs. And he's right. a guy who lives in Nashville now. And yeah, I mean, I've talked to him about this record. I've talked to him about Graham. It's like, yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> th- th- yeah. This was, this was a, a very, very direct influence on that. Yeah. But I, I I love great singing and I love great songs and I think there's so many great Eagle songs and and Agreed. sure Agreed. you can yeah. you can quibble about you know the quality across their their entire catalog and and uh, and this and that but I think just as as uh, great singers and writers I, I I'm a I'm a fan. Agreed. All right, so this is another one. So this song, uh, written by Graham Parsons. So did he originally sing this one, and then uh, McGuinn and Hillman uh, redid the vocals? Yeah, and is you can de- you can definitely hear his vocal in here. Okay, and, okay. and I think that this is one that probably came out better than it would have been if he'd sang it. I mean, if you listen to this, a bead with the one that he sang the lead vocal on, it's not a particularly good vocal, the one that's on the CD. Oh, okay, okay. But um, I think that this one came out really well, and this is another great Lloyd Green steel part. Oh, and right, another right. great Clarence White thing, and this is just more of that kind of um, classic birds vocal arrangement, and it's more of kind of a rock and roll song. So, so this, this is I used to cover this in a band. It was super fun to play. Wilco does a great version of this. Oh, nice! All right, let's listen to One Hundred Years from Now. 
yeah, so nice. So the the group vocals work on this one really nice, I think. Uh, yeah, they do, and and you can clearly hear Graham in there. Okay, like especially in the nobody knows what kind of trouble they're in, you can you can definitely pick out his voice. Right. So this is one where they just again, you know, did I invent this word? I'm sure not. They birdsified it. You know, they <laughs> right. they, they did they did a, a, a sort of a group vocal around it. They just yeah. sort of they 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 backed it off a bit. But the thing that I love the most about this this track, which is which is present in several of these tracks, is is I mean, does Lloyd Green know how to kick off a song? It's like, oh yeah, right, right, yeah. It's like his his uh, his intro licks are so beautiful. Yeah, they are. All right, so now we get a Cindy Walker song sung by Hillman, Chris Hillman. Uh, Yeah, this is this is one that I that I uh, you know never really connected with actually until recently until I've been listening to it in the last week or so. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I I always liked it fine, but I I like it a lot more. It was fun to go find the original Gene Autry version and listen to that. Right, Gene Autry from the film of the same name. So yeah, this is this is this is if they used to call it country western music, this is definitely western music. Right. All right, let's listen to Blue Canadian Rockies. In the blue Canadian Rockies Spring is silent through the trees And the golden poppies are blooming Round the banks of Lake Louise Now, oh, how my lonely heart is aching tonight For that girl I left behind And oh, what I'd give if I could be there tonight With a sweetheart who's waiting for me In the blue Canadian Rockies Yeah, very country western. You know what's interesting about this this song though is um and this is probably this is a song f- probably written in the 40s I think it was first recorded around 1950. It starts with the chorus. How often oh you, right, right, how right. How often do you hear that? <laughs> Just like it's right out of the right out of the box you got the chorus. Right. And it's and it's really hooky. But that's and and it's Hillman and McGuinn singing a beautiful harmony together. And um <clears throat> also this is one there's no steel in this it's just Clarence White. Oh, okay, okay. And you can tell that Clarence White is, you know, his style of playing is to be able to accommodate for not having a steel in the band. Right. Because at a, at a casual listen, you'd assume it was steel, but that's him, you know, I don't know if he's working the B-bender, but he's definitely oh, okay, okay. playing licks that are that are taking up the same space that a steel would. Right, right. And uh, by the way, uh, Cheap Trick is a band that we discovered that opens with the chorus a lot. We did uh, Heaven Tonight, and I think there's like four songs on there that open with the chorus, so that's a, that's a big Cheap Trick. An- another band I could talk about for hours. Right? All right. Absolutely. Yeah, we're definitely in the same wheelhouse. All right, so you mentioned Merle Haggard before. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this is the Hag with with Graham and vocals, and he's he's recorded quite a few of these. And supposedly that they were supposed to play the song um, "Sing Me Back Home" when they played the Opry. So they played the Opry at the Ryman Auditorium right after they recorded the first basics for this record. They were invited to play, and Graham pissed everybody off because they were supposed to play "Sing Me Back Home," but he scrapped that after it had been announced and said, "Oh, they no, announced no, so, let's play oh Hickory Wind." And, <laughs> That's that's <laughs> why they were so hated by the national establishment. Oh right! But um, these long-haired hippies. 
<laughs> yeah, Merle was just such a huge, I think, inspiration to Graham. You know, I think just right. his foundational. So he's very comfortable singing Merle Haggard songs. All right, let's listen to a little bit of Life in Prison. The jury found the verdict first degree They swore I planned her death to be I prayed they'd sentence me to die But they wanted me to live and I know If I could die, my pain might go away. When you think about it, it's kind of haunting him singing that uh, my life would be a burden every day. If I could die, my pain might go away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, well, <laughs> right? this is a guy who was obviously in enormous pain. And, and you know, he was a, a heroin addict. And, yeah. You know, he died from, from an overdose. He was definitely trying to anesthetize himself in a lot of ways. But this song is, is like, I'm not quite convinced by Graham singing this song. If you listen to Merle Haggard's version, for one thing, the, the lyrics are different. He says, uh, he says, insane with rage, I killed my loving wife. <laughs> you know, it's like Merle's, uh, even though he's a great singer, he's got this kind of like tough guy voice, which yes, Graham yes. definitely does not have. Right, right. But it's like this song is just all to- toxic masculinity. You know, this guy like pissed off and killed his wife and now he wants to die because he feels so crappy about it. I still it. love her. <laughs> I mean, it's a really weird premise for a song. It's it like, is. are we supposed to feel bad for him? You know? I know, right? He just like killed his wife with his bare hands yeah, and now no, he's no. like, woe is me, I want to die. <laughs> but it's like Graham... Uh, different time. It was written there, in a different there's kind time. of a levity of the way he sings it. Like He obviously is having a great time singing it. You know? Right, so, right, right, right. So it... I didn't connect with the lyrics in the same way after, in, until I <laughs> Good. listened That's probably to healthy. <laughs> right until I listened to Merle singing. It's like, oh my god, okay, insane with rage. Also, I think it's weird. Is that is that, is that the album version? Uh, yes, because it it's there's no harmony, which I think is an interesting choice. Ah, uh, okay, okay. You maybe know, they thought maybe they wanted to sound uh, a tougher, a little tougher. I don't know. I think this is kind of a of a piece with "You're Still on My Mind." If if you listen to the um, "Gilded Palace of Sin," which is the Burrito Brothers album that he and Hillman made the, a year later, there's a lot of that kind of honky tonk. Oh, okay, okay, covers, but um, it's interesting. All right, so now we close. We open and close the record. With a Bob Dylan song, another now. So they got these songs. These they did these songs before officially released them. Before he released them, right? Well, the basement tapes were uh, widely distributed uh, underground as bootlegs. Right, you know, right, they, right. They, I think that that double album that Columbia put out was around 1970. Yeah, uh, the the basement tapes, but. There's a lot of Dylan bootlegs that were circulating, but yeah, they had a relationship with with Albert Grossman, and he was he was sending him stuff to consider for the record. So I think both uh, "You Ain't Going Nowhere" and "Nothing Was Delivered" were were songs that he demoed or whatever in the basement with the band. Right. And uh, yeah, this one is I think it's an interesting place to end because this is the most kind of rock and roll 
and the most consistent with the birds. Like, it you is. know, there is, there's, there's a Lloyd Green steel in here, which I love. And, um, you know, Graham's uh, apparently playing piano and organ on this, but th- this is, if they made a record where every track was approached like this, then it would be a much softer blow, you know, oh, right, right, transition. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're opening a lot of doors for, for where they would go from there. You know, they became very sort of uh, experimental after this, but, you know, this is this, this to me is more similar to kind of where they were going with Eight Miles High and that kind of sound. Right, right. So all right, got more psychedelia, but I right. love it. Nothing was delivered. Nothing was delivered, and I tell this truth to you, not out of spite or anger. Simply cause it's true Now you must provide some answers For what you said was not received And the sooner you come up with it And the sooner you can leave Nothing is better Nothing is best Nothing was delivered And it's up to you to say Just what you had in mind When you made everybody pay Do you feel like in the verses he's sort of singing like Dylan a little bit? I mean, usually... He doesn't do that, but I feel like on this one, I, I almost hear it a little. Yeah, I think there's a little of that on, on You Ain't Going Nowhere, too, uh, where he's, um, there's a certain line on there that he, he sings a lot like Dylan. I'm trying to think. It's um, Anyway, yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think it's interesting here. I, I, I haven't gone back and listened to Dylan's Basement Tapes version of this, but it starts out as this country shuffle, and then it kind of goes into that rock and roll part of the yes, chorus. Yes, no, nothing right, is better, right. nothing is best. That's country rock, you know. I think right, you could really right, say right. like this. This track is is a is a, a prime example of country rock. The reason I don't I say that this isn't a country rock record is because so much of it is just straight country. Right, right. Country That's played true. by That's rock true. players, you know, with some country players. It's it's just it's a unique animal at this time. Yeah, it is, and it's just it, it's amazing how it's grown so much in stature from uh when it first came out which it's hard to you can't find any good reviews of it originally when it came out well nobody knew what to make of it and and you know that's i think that's the real risk of of being a creative art forward musician is is you know if you're following your muse like that if you're going where your inspiration is taking you then you run the risk of alienating your audience yeah and they certainly ran a gigantic risk of alienating their audience here by by making this move because there wasn't a lot of precedent for it. Right. You know, if if you're saying the precedent for it was Graham and the International Submarine Band, well, nobody fucking heard that. Record. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. know, that wasn't something everyone was talking about. That right, was completely right. underground. <laughs> and and uh, you know the oh here's one thing that's a really interesting uh, uh, exercise though to think about how, where they were coming from. So Hillman was pushing the the birds towards country several years before this and actually on, on the i think of their second album turn 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 there's a version of uh satisfied mind yeah so this is a hit uh from, from the 50s porter wagner was, was best known for it but a number of people cut it 
and the birds do a version of Satisfied Mind on Turn, 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 which is not really a country version. And I remember that's well, that was my first um, introduction to that song, was hearing that in, a, in that birds record. Because you want to know how I got into the birds was, uh, and this, this, is, this tells you more about my own work, musical history, but the way that I really got into the birds was because I got that Husker Du 8 Miles High scene. Oh, okay. <laughs> which I love. And that awesome. one's, that one's worth a revisit for sure. Yes. But I heard that, and that made me want to go hear the original, so I started buying birds records. Nice, nice. And I bought the album Turn, 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 which is an earlier one, from 65. And I really liked the lyrics in that song, Satisfying Mind. And I had to trace back from there to figure out that it was an old country song. Right, right. But but here's the connection. So that was sort of the first moment where the birds started to go country was Hillman bringing in Satisfied Mind. And 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 the International Submarine al- album, Save at Home, also has a version of Satisfied Mind sung by Grant. Oh, okay, okay. And it's really interesting to A-B those, to listen to one and then the other, because their approaches are so different. And Graham's approach is really just like doing Porter Wagner, you know? Right, right, right. But the birds' approach was to do a kind of a folk arrangement of it. So, you know, those influences are coming together here and kind of clashing in a way. Right, right, right. Well, John, this was awesome. You were, I think you were the perfect person. Other people have mentioned doing this record, but you were the perfect person. And I feel like you could have done four hours in this. <laughs> yes. Fair, but, it, but, you know. I told you I had a lot to say about no, it. No, no, it, it, it was great. And I think we actually worked out really good with timing because you you're a very busy man. Uh-huh. So, Rounder Records, what, what's going on with Rounder Records? What's exciting, something exciting you want to share with people or you want to turn people on to? Oh, um, I mean, it's it, things are going great at Rounder Records. We're 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 having an amazing year right That's now. That's great. That's um, great to hear. Well, uh, uh, people are just stuck at home. They, they they have to listen to shit, right? Well, you know, I've got a, a new album coming up uh, soon by by this artist Billy Strings, who's a who's a sort of a you know evolved bluegrass artist who who uh, a lot of people love these days, and uh, just released a new album by by. Or sort of an album or EP. It's like a suite by uh, Sarah Jarose called The Blue Heron Suite, which is, which is a really beautiful record. Um, some artists that I'm really proud of at the label, uh, Rustin Kelly, um, Katie Pruitt, Warren Treaty. You know, we've got a lot of great stuff. And we've got, got some big releases uh, later in the year that we haven't announced yet that I'm really excited about, so I'm not going to blab about it. Uh-huh. All right. Just in case they haven't been announced by the time you uh, actually air this. But... You know, it's it's. I got my uh, job at Rounder at age fifty, and I feel like that's when I caught my break. You know, I tried to get a job at Rounder when I lived in Boston back in my early twenties, and they wouldn't hire me for the loading dock. Oh, really? <laughs> wow, look at you! So uh, I feel like coming in as president of the label is great, but it's you know what an incredible opportunity to, you know, to be able to develop artists and and uh, you know yeah. work with incredible music. It's fifty year old label. It's you know had some incredible uh, uh, releases in the past, as you know. So, yeah. Uh, I'm 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 loving what I'm getting to do. Well, that's great. I mean, you're clearly someone that loves music, and you're the right kind of guy that should be the president of uh, of a label. I mean, that should be that should be who is the president of a label. I'm a lifer. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and if anybody, uh, you know, if I got anything wrong uh, in this, you know, I hope I oh, hope that we inspires get stuff some wrong di- all the time. So I hope that worry. inspires <laughs> some discussion. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I for think sure. there's so many great stories with this record, like with all great records, you know. But right, it's just, right, right. It's so so full of great stuff. Well, thanks again for coming on, and I definitely uh, definitely want to get you on again sometime because uh, you clearly love music, and that's what this show is all about. People that love to just sit around and talk about getting music. to talk. About
talk about music is always okay by it's me. It's great, right? All right, guys. So uh, don't forget on Instagram and Facebook, you can find us at, at that record got me high. Also, that Facebook group got me high. That's really fun. You could check that out. Uh, Twitter, it's uh, at TRGMH podcast. And you could email me uh, with anything you want to say. You got questions. You want to say, what, what the fuck did you say? That, that was so wrong. That was so stupid. It's uh, trgmh33 at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you guys want to help support uh, the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash trgmh and become a patron. John, thanks again for doing this. I hope you have a good time. My pleasure. All right. See you guys next week. Bye.